Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we just sang the song, Jesus is my life. Jesus is my life. And they say the most important question in life is who do you say Jesus Christ is? Who is Jesus Christ? That is the most important question in life because that will determine your eternity, whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. Remember when we started the book of Mark and we went through the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1 started with this, the beginning of the gospel of Christ, the Son of God. In other words, the center of the gospel is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to know who he is. And in fact, Mark goes through the book, as we go through the book of Mark, Jesus demonstrates to his disciples who he is. And Jesus is getting to the end of his ministry, and there's going to be a pass and fail on his ministry. Because if Christ fails here, then Christianity dies because it doesn't carry on. And he turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says what? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who was promised. You are the Savior to come. And so we must recognize that the center of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must know who he is. And so this morning, we will deal with that in our text. Let's read again Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And again, we said that this was one long sentence in the Greek. And so he would be penalized in English class, but Peter's allowed to do, uh, Paul's allowed to do this. And so let's read this opening greeting. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of, of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome and called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we ask you to teach us here this morning. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of your word to our hearts. That we might see these truths, that we might understand these truths, and that we might then apply them to our lives. And so this morning, we know that apart from his work, nothing here is of value. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning and that your church would be made a more fit bride for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. 
Well, we said in this greeting, and, and we really said the greeting goes down to verse 17, that Paul is, is again giving us reasons why the book of Romans matters. Why, why should we read this book? Is, what, you know, like, is, it, is it of value to us? Maybe we should go to a different book. And we said that as they received the scroll that Romans was written on, they would have started to open that scroll. And the first thing that they would have seen was really the first reason why we should read this book, because they would see Paul. And they would immediately recognize that name, the identity of Paul, and they would recognize he was the one who once persecuted the church, but he is now the one who is writing to them. And they've heard the rumors of Paul as he is now serving the one that he once persecuted. But Paul doesn't stop there. He then gives us three, three credentials as to why we should listen to Paul. We said that he was called as an apostle, set apart a bondservant of Christ, set apart for the gospel. In other words, he was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ who was completely under his will and going about his purposes. He had been called as an apostle. He had been given an official position as a spokesman for God. And the gospel that he brought was the gospel of God sourced in God. And therefore, it was the true gospel. And Paul says, this is why you should listen to it because I wrote it and this is who I am. Well, we also saw the reason, the second reason that we should really look at the, the book of Romans is because it's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. And we looked at that, and he really began in verse 1, and he begins maybe to transition to the theme of the book, but he also gives us on his third credential, and he says, it's, it, he said, I'm set apart for what the gospel of God. In other words, we should read this because this is the gospel that's sourced in God. This is the true gospel. It comes from him. It's his gospel. And then we also saw that the, this gospel that he's about to bring is, is, again, confirmed for us in the Old Testament. In other words, this is not something new. Paul is not, as we said before, detaching from the Old Testament and giving us something completely new. It's not like God gave him a revelation and this is completely a new program, but rather these had been promised by God in the Old Testament. This is exactly not just aligned with the Old Testament. It is this gospel is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about the Messiah to come. And so Paul says, listen, you need to listen to this gospel. It's about this gospel, and this gospel is, a, is actually a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Well, that leads us really to the, the third reason, or the, the third idea of why this gospel is, is to be listened to. And he says, because the gospel is about God's Son. The gospel is about God's Son. He says in verse 3, concerning his son. So this gospel comes from God. It's good news, for, and it's good news about his son. Jesus is the good news. Look down at verse 9. For God whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of what? His son. But So it, the, the gospel then is about what? who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. 
And so we cannot separate the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is central to the gospel. And in fact, one writer said, this is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that the whole gospel is included in Christ, so that if anyone removes one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. In other words, the truths that we will see in, this, in verses 3 and 4 about the Lord Jesus Christ, if you remove them, you remove the gospel and it's no longer a saving gospel. And so you must believe these truths and understand these truths to be a Christian. If you don't accept these truths, if you don't accept what is written here, it's not the true gospel. And so what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ is important and the most important thing that you can know about yourself and your eternity. And so as we go through here, I want to unpack four truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that are essential, four truths that we must know. We'll see, first of all, that we'll see his divine nature. He says concerning his son. And then later on, he, he is, is said to be the son of God. In other words, Jesus Christ, we will see his divine nature. Secondly, we will see his human nature. He is a descendant, uh, uh, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. In other words, Christ is completely human and we'll see his human nature. Then we will see his vindication, his vindication. We will see that he is, he has been by through the resurrection, who was declared the son of God by power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. He's vindicated as to who he is, as he is raised with power. And lastly, we'll see his personal identity, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord. And so we will look at these truths this morning and recognizing that detaching from any one of these leaves you short of the gospel because the gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. So first of all, we see his divine nature in verse 3 concerning his son, or as the next verse says, verse 4, the son of God. And at the foundation of Christianity, then at the very basis, right at the very bottom, we must recognize that the Jesus that walked the earth, the Jesus of Nazareth, the one that was born in Bethlehem, the one who walked among men is the eternal son of God. Now, Again, we have to recognize that he, he is God himself. We're certainly used to speaking about Jesus, and we think of John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the what? The Word was God. But I want you to notice this, and, and what's indicated very clearly in John 1, 1 is also indicated here, and that is the pre-existence of Christ. In other words, Christ was existing and was the Son before he came to earth. Now I want you to notice the order in these verses even. He says, concerning his son, then his son was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, and then he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Now in this order, he was God's son before his birth, 
before his death and before the resurrection. Each time he is declared what? To be the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. And there are a number of passages in Scripture that indicate this. We think of Hebrews chapter 1, where he says, In the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he what? Made the worlds. In other words, Christ was existing as the Son, and the Son what? Made the world. All things were made by him, without him was not what? Anything made that was made. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, what? To be born of a woman. He didn't send him to become the son. He sent him to become what? Born of a woman. And so he was the son. He was God's son before anything else. So then, what do, we, what do we actually discover then by the fact that he's called concerning his son or, the, or he, being the son of God? Why does he call him that? Well, first of all, as soon as we say concerning the son, there are certain things that we think of in our humanity that we want to be careful that we don't draw into this relationship. There are certain things that are implied because of this picture in our human relationships that we want to make sure we don't apply to Christ. Now, first of all, we want to say that the Father and the Son does not imply that the Father existed before the Son. Now, as we, in human relationships, our fathers exist before us, but that's not what's being said here. Christ was eternally with the Father. Secondly, it doesn't imply, as Mormon teaches, that the son is the product of a sexual union between the father and, the, and a woman. He's not fathered that way. Thirdly, it does not imply that the father's-son relationship, that they are not equal in power and authority. In other words, we want to make sure that we don't think, because we have a tendency in, in our human relationships that dad has the power and he has authority over the son, but that's not the relationship that he's emphasizing here. So what is what do we learn then from the son-father relationship? Why does he call it this way? Well, the first thing that we, that we really understand is the deity and equality of the son to the father. Now, we tend to think when we speak of father-son, again, that there's a subordinate relationship. But in the first century... A dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with his father. The same deference demanded by a king was forwarded to his what? His adult son. The son, after all, was the very essence of his father. He was the same DNA as his father, heir to all the father's rights and privileges. They're equal, therefore equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus is called the Son of God, it is understood categorically by all as a title declaring him equal with God and significantly the same essence as the Father. And this is precisely what the Jewish leaders regarded the total, the title Son of God to be, and this is as Christ claiming 
to be equal with the Father. In fact, we can see this. If we, if we look in, in Mark chapter 14, at his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus appears before false witnesses <clears throat> and they bring their testimony. In verse, 40, in verse 59, <clears throat> and of course, they, it's false testimony, and with false testimony, they can't give their testimony right. They, they, can't, they can't get their story straight. So Caiaphas stands up, and he questions Jesus directly. Uh, this was the, actually, again, we talk about the illegal things that happened in Christ's uh, trials. Again, he wasn't supposed to do this, but he did this. And he says, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Verse 61, but Jesus kept silent and did not answer. answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him. Now, Matthew tells us, that he put him under oath. And when you were put under oath, you were required by law to what answer? <clears throat> and he said to him, are you the Christ? Are you, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am, I am. There was no hesitation. There was no, no explaining. There was no you know, trying to, to, to soften the blow, he just simply said, I am. In verse 62, he says, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of what? Heaven. Not exactly subtle what he's claiming. And you'll notice the response that 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 statement makes. The, the high priest tearing his clothes said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard blaspheming. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving death. They understood. They understood what that title was saying. They understood what Jesus Christ was claiming. He was claiming equality with the Father. He was claiming to be of the same essence of the Father. And anyone who would claim that, it would be what? Blasphemy if he wasn't that true. No, no ordinary Jew would make that. I think an even maybe even clearer passage is in John 5:16. Jesus had healed a man, a lame man. And it was on the Sabbath. And of course, you know the the Pharisees view of the Sabbath. They're upset again. He's not keeping our traditions. He's breaking the Sabbath. It says in verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but he answered them, my father, okay, my father. He's again claiming that son-father relationship here. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now understand that claim. 
Because he's saying, I, my father is working. In other words, I am the son of God. In other words, I am God. I'm equal to God. God is working. I'm working, which means I am doing the works of God is what he's saying. In essence, is what he's saying clearly. I'm the son of the father. I am equal to the father. I'm the same essence of the father. I am deity. And guess what? He's working, which means I'm doing the works of God. Now, you can see why they, if you didn't believe in him, you'd be a little upset at this point. For this reason, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father. They knew what it meant. They knew what Jesus Christ was claiming to be. He had a unique relationship. He was equal with God the Father. He was equal with God. So to be the Son was exactly that. In fact, John, John chapter 10 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are what? One. Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of them do you, do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for, good, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself to be what? God. And so Jesus Christ is unequivocally saying, I am what? I'm the Son of God. I am God. I am equal with the Father. I am deity. And we must recognize that if you are going to be a Christian, if you are going to be a believer, you must recognize the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he came here in the flesh, he was fully God and fully man. And you cannot deny that. Jesus Christ stands on that. He claims that. And if we're going to get the gospel right, we need to recognize who Jesus Christ is, that he is God. He has the full prerogatives of God. Well, Paul says not only is he, is, is this gospel concerning his son, and it's central to understand that this son therefore is deity, we also see that he is not just deity, but he is also fully human. We see his human nature. We see his human nature. That is the second truth that we must recognize about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not good enough to preach a gospel where Jesus Christ is divine and then to deny his humanity. Verse 3 says, concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. And so this one that was born in the, that was eternal, the son of God who existed from all eternity past is now coming and taking on human form. Now for us, this is so often so familiar to us that we forget to actually see how dazzling this is. 
For most religions and many of the Gnostic religions, the, the idea was that humanity or human flesh was what? Evil. It was dirty. It was sinful. And therefore, how could God ever take on human form? It was seen as inconceivable. How could God be in flesh? Spirit was good. Body was bad. In fact, they spent a lot of their time trying to deny their bodies and tried to get into the spirit realm because that's where things were pure. And that's why often they even lived immoral lives because it didn't matter what their body did. It mattered what their spirit did. But here we're, we're told that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And again, it's clear. Again, we quoted earlier Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time came. And again, we've talked about this often at Christmas time, right? It's not that God looked down history and said, oh, this is a good time. It was when God was ready that he sent his son. It's when God wanted him to come. God sent for the son. And again, there you get the idea of preexistent. He existed before because he sent his son. He didn't send him to become the son. He said he sent him to be born of a woman. He was born fully human. He lived in a particular time in a particular place. And you'll just notice that phrase again, according to the what? The flesh. Now Paul uses that word flesh in several different ways. One thing way he never does is he never talks about the soft tissues of the body. In other words, he speaks of the body as a whole. He sometimes uses flesh in the idea of fallen human nature. But here he uses it simply to mean a human nature. He came in all the human humanness that a human can be. Jesus took on a human nature and he took on a human form. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Although he existed in the form of God, if, if he, Philippians 2.6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, not to be hung on to, but he emptied himself. Now, how did he empty himself? And we've gone over this, but we sometimes have been taught this wrong and we want to just continue to hammer the truth. He did not empty himself by losing anything. He did not lose anything. He emptied himself by what? Taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's how he emptied himself. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. In other words, Jesus Christ came and he took on human flesh and he took on all that is necessary for humanity to be a human being. And he was so much like them that they often said, isn't this what? Joseph's son, right? He's just human. He's just an ordinary guy. He just looked like you and me. He, but he was the God-man. In other words, he was fully God and at the same time fully man. And he, he then had a divine nature but, uh, and a human nature. But his body was like ours. His body was weak. His body needed food. It needed, it needed sleep. It, he got thirsty, right? He slept in the boat. 
And so the news is that Christ came and became human on earth. So the question has to be, why did he need to be human? Why did he need to be human? Paul seems to be making a big deal of it. Why does he need to be human? Well, he had to be human so that he might be a sympathetic high priest. We know that it is because of what he suffered. In fact, Hebrews 2.18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are what? Tempted. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He came to be again so that he might be tempted as here without sin, that he could bear God's wrath. He had to be a man in order to what? To die for a man. Romans 5.18. For he, so then, as through one transgression, the resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, the many were made righteous. In other words, he lived that perfect life for us. He's the one who came and was able to actually pay the price for sin. He says in Romans, uh, Hebrews 2, 16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he was made like his brethren. In other words, he didn't die for angels. He became a man to die for who? The seed of Abraham. He, d- he died for what? He was made like his brethren. He needed to be human. He needed to be human to be that mediator between God and man. And so Christ needed to be human in order to live that perfect life, to be a fit sacrifice for humanity. He needed to be human Because legally only what? Only a man could die and pay the penalty for his sins and death. Right? Legally only a man could pay for man's sin. So Christ became flesh. But notice this. Paul Paul, Paul adds this other phrase on the beginning here. And he's making a point. He says Jesus was born a descendant of what? David, according to the flesh. In his humanity, he was born in the line of David. So the question then becomes, why is that important? Why would that be part of Paul's gospel? That that seems, it's good enough to be human, isn't it? But Paul actually says, no, he's in the flesh, but he's in the flesh according to being a descendant of David. Why is that? Well, because the Old Testament is clear that the Messiah would be a what? A physical descendant of David. To qualify to be the Messiah, the Messiah must be a descendant of David. And we can look at several passages when we look. If we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Here, the Davidic covenant, the unilateral, unconditional, legally binding promise God makes to David. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come from 
come forth from you, and that's Solomon, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. Now, this is where we leave Solomon and go into the future, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, there will be a descendant of Solomon who will always be king. And again, this is seen again in, in Psalm 89.3, where it's clearly said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne, what? To all generations. This is sprinkled all through the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In Isaiah, it becomes clear that this king will be forever, is going to be the Messiah. Listen to Isaiah 9, the familiar prophecy of Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it from then on and forevermore. So understand that the Old Testament says that what? The Messiah must come from David. He must come from that kingly line and he will rule forever. And so to meet those qualifications, the Messiah must be in that line. And Jesus was in that line. In fact, as we, we start the New Testament, remember, we're starting the New Testament, and again, they've arranged Matthew first, so you can imagine, we've got 400 years of, 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 no, of God not speaking, and then all of a sudden, the New Testament starts to, to be written, and we start the New Testament in Matthew with these words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, what? The son of David the first words of the New Testament to clearly lay down who Jesus is. He is the Messiah that was promised from the line of David. Gabriel shows up, right? He shows up to Mary to announce Christ's birth. And Gabriel understands the same thing. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name is Joseph, of the descendants of what? David. She is going to marry who? Someone from the line of David. And verse 32, He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This Messiah is what now being announced. This isn't just an Old Testament teaching. This is a New Testament teaching as the, as the angel Gabriel declares that he is from the line of David, and he will sit on the throne of his what father? He has to be in the line of David. And we know that Joseph went up to the the city of Bethlehem because why? That was his city. That's why he needed to go. That's where his descendants were from. He was a descendant of David. Even the Jews who rejected Christ recognized that the Messiah must come from the line of David. John 7, 42, while they were debating whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah, 
they say this. Has not the scripture said that the Messiah comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They recognized that the Messiah had to come from there. That was one of the qualifications. In fact, that's one of the condemnations that should come on their head because they should have recognized that he was meeting the qualifications of the Messiah and yet they chose to reject him. Paul's testimony in 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to what? My gospel. Isn't that interesting? The Messiah must come according to the flesh and be a descendant of David because the scriptures had predicted it. In fact, if you look at the genealogies of David, uh, of Christ, and you look in Matthew, the genealogy comes through who? Joseph. And there's his legal claim, his legal claim to the throne through his adoptive father, Joseph. Luke 3 traces the genealogies through Mary. And again, she is a descendant of David. She's the physical descendant. And so Christ is born of the physical descendant of Mary with the legal claim of his father. And so he's saying, listen, if you're going to understand the gospel... If you're going to get the gospel right, you must recognize that not only was Jesus Christ deity, but that he was fully human. He came in the flesh and he is to be worshipped as such. In fact, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is eternal son of God that's come in the flesh, guess what? You're not a Christian. That is essential to the gospel. In fact, 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Je- confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard and that is coming and is now already in the world. You are deceived. You are, you are not a believer The gospel, then, must recognize concerns the Son, and the Son is both fully deity and full humanity. And those must be embraced. These truths must be embraced to have the true gospel. Take them away, you lose the gospel, because the gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is who he is. Well, we've seen his divine nature, we've seen his human nature, now we see his vindication. Verse 4, look at verse 4. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Now this phrase describes another event from the earthly life of God's eternal Son. We have His birth and the incarnation. Here we have the death and resurrection. Paul says the eternal Son was declared to be the Son. Now what does he mean? Well, this word declared can be translated either marked out, designated, or bounded. But if you translate this word into English, you get the word horizon, horizon. And it describes a line of demarcation. Like the horizon marks off the sky and the ground. You can see where it is, the horizon. 
so too, literally, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has marked him off from all other people. It's, it's divided him from everyone else. There are no other human beings like him. Now it says he's, he's done this according to the spirit of holiness, and there's some debate as to what this means. I would understand that he is saying, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Christ came and all through his incarnation, he was worked through with the Holy Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He, did, he worked through the Holy Spirit. He was baptized by John the Baptist, and he went in his ministry in the power of the Spirit. He lived in obedience by the Spirit. But during his humanity, he divested himself and was obedient to the, the will of the Father and submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a new quality of life here. And so Jesus was marked out. He was determined. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. Before Bethlehem, he was the eternal Son. During his earthly life, he never ceased being the Son of God. But during his life, he was given a human body with his frailty. He was tired. He was thirsty. He had to sleep. But because of the resurrection, he was taken from his state of humiliation and weakness and he was exalted. He was exalted by power. That's why when he comes to Galilee with his disciples in Galilee, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. William Hendrickson writes, from all eternity he was the son of God, but during his period of humiliation, his power in its fullest degree was hidden from view. But by means of his glorious resurrection, his power began to shine forth in all its glory. As one writer says, you see at the time of Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his being seated at the right hand of God, he was coronated not as the Son of God, which he always has been, but as the God-man. Through his perfect human life, he had earned the right to the throne. That's why Paul says in Acts 236, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 13.33, Paul says, God has fulfilled the promise to our children that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. You see, the resurrection was like Jesus' coronation. He was now now being, though he was always going to be Lord over the church, he is now, has that coronation where he is set up, where because of what he has done in his flesh, because of his obedience to the Father, because he is the Savior, he is now given full authority to save. He is now the Lord of all. He is now given king, kingship over the universe. And now his humanity along with his deity, is set up in this new, new way of life. Now, the, the God-man, the mediator, was now made the possessor of this authority, and his human nature was made to share the glory of his royal dominion. As the God-man, he was given the right to rule, a right he earned in his earthly life and death. 
So the question you might ask is this. Okay, Christ is raised in power. He is now now possessing, given the name Lord. He now rules over the church. He now is the one who has the, the right to save. He now is at glory and been raised up from his humiliation. But honestly, what makes Jesus' resurrection any different than the other resurrections we have in the Bible? I mean, Lazarus was resurrected, wasn't he? Didn't Elijah and Elisha raise people from the dead? What, what, what is the big deal about Jesus' resurrection? After all, there was other resurrections, weren't there? So what is this, how does this make, how does this demonstrate anything? Well, first of all, we would say this. Jesus staked everything that he taught and did on his resurrection. In other words, Jesus said, here's my teaching. Guess what? If I'm not raised, then, then it doesn't make any difference at all. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 2, he cleansed the temple for the first time. And the leaders came to him and said, uh, what right do you have to do this? Why are you doing this? By what authority? And he said to them, Jesus answered in verse 19, Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, to them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. In other words, Jesus said, this is a, te- this is a litmus test to who I am. I've taught you that I'm the, the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you I was the Messiah. I did miracles to show this, and now here's the greatest miracle of all. I have conquered sin and death, and I have staked everything, all of my claims about who I am on this. Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and be raised, what, on the third day. Jesus taught this. He claimed this. He said, this is who I am. This is what I must do. Believe me, because I will be raised. Even on the Mount of all, uh, on the mountain, when Christ was glorified, he says, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is what? Risen from the dead. It was a litmus test. But secondly, there's another reason that Jesus was rec- uh, resurrected and, this is, and his resurrection is different. And we would say this, every other resurrection had someone to raise them. Every other resurrection had someone who was physically present who said, I'm going to raise you from the dead, right? Jesus said, Lazarus, what? Come forth. Elijah put his hands on the widow's son. But here, recognize that Jesus Christ claims to have what? Raised himself from the dead. In fact, he says in verse, in John chapter 10, therefore my, my verse 17 Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may, what? Take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down for myself, for I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He says, I actually, here's what's different. I'm able to what? I'm able to raise myself. Now we know from Scripture that the the Holy Spirit takes credit. We know the, the Father takes credit. But Jesus Christ himself says, I lay down my life. I didn't, I'm not a victim here. I didn't, I wasn't forced against my will. And then I wasn't raised without my power. In other words, I'm claiming this for myself. And Jesus Christ now is the one that is raised and what? Seated at the right hand of the Father. He was raised once, never to die again. And he says, this vindicates who I am. This vindicates everything that I've told you. I am truly God. I am truly human and I have the power and I am vindicated through power and through God's acceptance of what my sacrifice. Christ's resurrection demonstrated that what that the Father accepted who Jesus Christ is. Why would God allow Jesus Christ to be accepted if he wasn't who he said he was? Why would he allow him to be resurrected? And yet Jesus Christ is resurrected. And so we must recognize that the resurrection is what? Integral to the gospel. And that Jesus Christ truly is Lord. He has been set up. And he is to be glorified and to be worshipped. So we see his divine nature. We see his human nature. We see his vindication. And then we see his, his personal identity. It says Jesus Christ our Lord. It's his personal identity. Here's the son and he's identified for us. The unique person that Paul is talking about. Now notice this, he's Jesus Christ, what? Our Lord, not somebody else's Lord, but our Lord, and he is Jesus Christ. He is in his, his human name, Jesus. He came to save his people, what? From their sins. He is the Christ. Christ is a title, not a name, and it means the anointed one. He's the Messiah. This one who is personal, this human being that came that was on earth to save his people from his sins is the anointed Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, the very Son of God. And he is what? Lord. Lord. He has the right to rule. Douglas Moo says, For Paul, the word Lord expresses both Jesus' cosmic majesty over everything and its individual right to rule you and me. And he says, This is who he is. This This Jesus Christ, this son is the Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the the one to come to save. He is the Messiah that was to come. And he is the Lord who will ultimately return. He is the Lord who rules. He's the one who will judge. And he has the one who now, because of the resurrection, because of what he has done in his humanity, because God came to earth and paid the price for sin, he has the right to rule the universe and he has the right to rule in your life. So he is our master, our sovereign. He owns us. And the implication of that is simply this. You must be 
personally committed and give full allegiance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He doesn't need to be made Lord. He is Lord. We must bow the knee to who he is. Who do you say that Jesus is? The most important question in your life and the most important thing about you is, who do you say that Jesus is? And you must agree with Paul. You must agree that he is the Son of God, that he is fully God. You must believe that he is fully human, that he came to earth, that he is lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross and that he rose again, that he conquered death and sin, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he is coming back. He is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He has validated his claims and therefore you must believe in Jesus. You must be willing to relinquish all of your sovereignty all of your personal right to rule, and you must bow your knee and acknowledge him that he is forever to have the right to be your Lord and Savior. It is central to our faith. We must put Jesus Christ back in the center, and we must worship him for all that he is. Removing any of who he is is to remove the saving gospel from us. Let us believe in him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we, we thank you that it is, that this book of Romans here is about the gospel and it's about our Lord Jesus Christ because he is central to the gospel and so we worship him this morning and we worship him for all that he is, that for his deity for his humanity, recognizing exactly who he is, that he has been vindicated with the son with power, that he is raised again, that he's coming back, and that he is Lord and to be worshiped and obeyed. I pray that you will confirm these truths in our heart this morning and may we go out rejoicing in our Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work in your name. Amen.